0: I have a a number of very good friends in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and that has been a little bit like a second home to me for many years. And um, some of these good friends are senior teachers in their own communities, guiding teachers in their own communities. And they had been meeting for a period of, I don't know, 15 15 years or so, and just as teachers, And sharing their own practice and what was happening for them and then since I've known them you know occasionally when I would be in town we would all meet together so we decided that we wanted to do a day long so um, you know we represented different communities a Tibetan community a Zen community um, Theravadan and monastic and then Barbara is from uh, Deep Spring which uses insight meditation but has an interesting angle in it And so all of us came together and our prospective communities came together and we thought, well, what do we want to do? You know, we're all teachers. How do we want to do this? So we shaped up the day and then we thought, well, rather than us giving talks, you know, each of us giving talks, what we would do is we would have a Dhamma dialogue between the four of us. So effectively, you know, invite whoever had come to listen in to an intimate conversation that we were sharing between us about what was alive for us in our own practice. And so rather than us talking to you, we were talking to each other. And you were invited to listen. And I loved it. Everyone loved it. The people loved it. It was just really great. And since then, there's been a couple of occasions where on retreats, the teacher and I that I'm co-teaching with, we've done Dhamma dialogues instead of individual talks. And again, this begins to rub the sense of me being the teacher and you being the yogis and I've got something to tell you and this is us being in relationship with each other with our tenderness and interest and care that we share and you're invited to participate in what unfolds between us and so I love it I totally love it and so when Terry and I were thinking about what to do for this retreat you know we thought well You know, one night, let's do a Dhamma Dialogue, you know, where it's the two of us talking about what's meaningful in our own lives, and you're invited to listen. And see if through us speaking to each other, as people who are committed to the practice do, if that gives insight for your own journey. So, it's a question. You know, how it lands for you, how it works for you, whether it works as effectively as me being in the role of being up here speaking and you being in the role of being there and listening. You know, how does it affect you? So here we are, and it's done with dialogue time. And you know, we had a we had a couple of topics that we were thinking about. So I just said to Terry, So what are we talking about?
1: <laughs> Well, um, since I've never done this, so it, it's a little hard for me to not know everybody's out there, you know, and kind of just be with you. And this is wonderful practice for me because I've never done this. Um, so I have some real questions that come up for me around the monastics. that I'm very curious about and you know maybe they are too but uh, they don't ever seem to come into part of the uh, teachings because I want to know I, I just want to know about you kind of um, as a person and you know you you come you come here and <laughs> this it, in Asia it's very different everyone knows how to be with you it's very common and it's very customary but when you come here i don't know exactly how to be with a monastic and the first thing is i think i don't know uh, if there's certain rules and so i'm afraid somehow to do anything because i'm afraid of uh, doing something wrong and um so I guess, I'm not sure what my, my questions are, is how am I supposed to be in your presence? Is it any different than I am supposed to be in other people's presence?
0: For me, what I like is when you are yourself, and when you're comfortable in your own skin, and when you feel relaxed and you feel um, at ease in being able to be who you are and do what you need to do and say what you need to say. Yeah, That's where I feel most comfortable. What I notice is is, is that part of what you're rubbing up against is, is that there's a traditional kind of feeling about what's proper for monastics, which has a lot of sense about it. You know, monastics are somehow removed, and there's a kind of etiquette or way that one might r- relate to them, and because it's not very familiar, then one might think that well, because you don't know it, then then the default is is that whatever you're doing is not right. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Right.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. But the most important thing is to, is you know in any relationship or any interaction with any human being is. Is to, to know your own intention to come from a place of authenticity, and and to be, um, you know, clear about what it is that you would like right. to communicate.
1: Right. You know. So it goes back to trust.
0: Right. <laughs> Trusting yourself.
1: Trusting. Um, yeah, I think you've upped the Annie a little bit as <laughs> far as trust because <laughs> it's like you know, it, it, am I, I know I in a lot of lineages. That when you know someone's giving a dharma talk, you don't put your feet out, and so, and I've done that. It's got my hands slapped a little bit, and uh, and then there are other traditions that seem customary, and I guess it's still my own stuff <laughs> yeah. of, of not of feeling awkward a little bit, and 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 the basic question is: It okay for me to be who I am?
0: It's absolutely okay <laughs> for you to be who you are. I wouldn't That's want great. you to be anything other than that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't want anything <laughs> Thank other you. than that. Thank you. You know, what we're in the middle of is navigating what forms are appropriate and respectful. So in, a, in an Asian monastery, there's all kinds of things about how to bow and where you place your foot and what you do and what you don't do and if it's okay to lie down. And, and so you just, it just would never be the case that people would lie down in the shrine room. Okay? And it would never be the case that people would point their feet towards the shrine or towards a monastic. It just wouldn't happen. But that comes from the value that feet are somehow dirty. You know? okay? Or dis- it's disrespectful. So if you did that in Asia, it would be like you know, something really uh, much stronger for us here. Right. Okay? But we don't have the value that feet are dirty and that pointing your feet towards the shrine is disrespectful. So, to ask people to keep that here is transporting a, something from another context into this context, and that feels uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So, it's a little bit like being bicultural, mm-hmm. you know, for me, mm-hmm. is to know what I need to know when I go visit other monasteries, and to know, you know, because sometimes, like, there have been times when I've been on retreat and people pointed their feet to me, and it was like, you know, I right. had the feeling as if they were, if they had done something disrespectful, and I had to recondition my somatic response to, right. to remember they had no intention to do anything disrespectful. Right. You know. That's great. And so my my learning coming back into the United States and into a context with most people who don't have any sense of. What a monastic culture in Asia looks like, or even in England, right. is to begin to feel out what feels correct. Mm. You know, what feels, what feels furthering, what actually feels like it supports what the Buddha intended,
1: mm.
0: which is is that we the form was designed to support awakening. It wasn't designed to support the form.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. And this is a constant question, you know, of what supports awakening and what supports the tradition, what supports the form, what supports awakening, right. you know, right. what's relevant here. Right. Yeah. So, you know, a monastic is a person like every other person. And also, you know, we are in roles, okay? So there's different kinds of ways, like, you know, when I'm speaking to you privately, I would feel more comfortable being uh, completely relaxed and spontaneous in a private context than I might be in another context. Okay. Like for me, it probably would be a bit of a stretch for me to get up and dance with you. (laughs) But in my own space, I would feel more safe about doing that. And it has to do about the juxtaposition between my precepts Ah. and the immediacy and spontaneity of what's arising in relationship with you. I see. Yeah? Okay. And so I'm I'm navigating these different layers. I'm a person who loved to dance, and I'm a nun that the precepts say we don't dance. Mm-hmm. And so there would be maybe a context where I could do that and feel really relaxed around it. And most contexts in public, I wouldn't feel comfortable. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, that's great. I I, I I, was suspecting that you were a person. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, I just want to see it. <laughs> I to, because is, I, have, I have a little bit of a... Um, uh, there's, and it's, uh, the robes are formidable and, I, and they're powerful and they have an effect on me that um, is very positive and it's also um, it kind of it, when I first saw monastics it was like I couldn't figure out if they were really weird or they were saints and I figured they had to be one the other. <laughs> because who would wear this in this country you know who could who could stand up and and carry themselves so beautifully you know with you know as if they were very different and it, it's always it's fascinated me to see and i love to see monastics where well, there was one in boulder that used to uh, go around and He's gone. It's really sad. He used to just walk the streets of Boulder and ring the ball. And it was so beautiful, no matter what I was doing in my house. It's like I'd hear that sound, and it was like, and it would just bring joy to my heart. And so I love it, and yet there's such a mysterious quality to it for me.
0: But you have many roles. Oh, sure. You know, <laughs> and when you're in one role. Yeah. You know, what does that do to the other roles? So when you're in role of grandma, right? how do you relate to husband? Right. Different. Yeah? Right. But grandma and husband, they don't have to split. Right. You don't right. have to not have a husband if you're being grandma. Right, right. I guess that, I'm not sure really what my question is, but... <laughs> 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 Why are we so weird? <laughs> Maybe I want to know if you're a saint. (laughs) Anybody who spent more than three days with me doesn't need to ask that. (laughs) Okay,
1: I'm also really very curious about... um, Well, some logistics, how things work, but also... So I'll just go there for a minute. Um, When you're cleaning the house, do you wear all these robes? <laughs> <laughs> what no. do you wear? Oh, oh, okay.
0: I wear this underneath here, this one. Oh, okay. So this so is the basic thing that <laughs> I wear. And this I wear when I'm teaching or I'm receiving alms food or I'm in a traveling outside the monastery. Okay. And this I don't wear most of the time. Okay. But in a monastery, we wear this a lot. Uh, so any time we're speaking with people, we would wear this robe. Beautiful. You know? And... Um, yeah, so there's a whole kind of art of cultivating what is known as samana, sanya, the perception of a samana. Hmm. And so, again, this is, the, this is the, you know, I'm a person, but I'm also a samana, I'm a gone-forth one. And so, um, you know, the fourth heavenly messenger yes. is of a samana. Yes. And that is a reminder that for all of us that there's an option. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, we stand out like you know you can spot us 2 miles away right but the point of it of of that was a real strong reminder for people right you have choice right and so it's not just for me to remember that my life is moving in that direction right but it's to let everybody else who sees me know right. that they also have that choice. That is beautiful. Thank you. you That's know. touching.
1: Yeah, and I think it addresses, and I think I'm getting my split now, it aggra- addresses uh, a real longing in me. You know, there's a longing for something uh, that is... Um, I don't know, but it, it, it makes that apparent. Yes. There's a longing to go deeper.
0: Now, you've been a committed practitioner and teacher for decades. You have that longing. Yeah. And that has been your life. Yeah. You know, so a large part of your life has been committed to going deeper, knowing that depth, right. and sharing it. Right. It's there. Right. So, how is it then? That the monastic robe activates a longing that's already there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, uh,
1: it, it's a is a real it's a real archetype <laughs> that you know you hold, and it's really
0: beautiful. And that I think is part of the reason why it's so powerful, mm-hmm. because it's completely beyond my own personality. Yeah, and I have been in more situations than i can tell where i received generosity that was beyond description not because of my personality Mm. and not because people knew who i was Mm. and not because they knew anything about me or what i did or how i lived but because of being part of this archetype Mm. that somehow evoked a response in them that they resonated with Mm. And that's part of the blessing that is really difficult to give language to unless you've somehow lived in it,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. you know? Beautiful, yeah,
1: I can imagine. I, yeah, it's hard. And I it's hard for me just even to, I guess I want to also grasp what it would mean. And I don't, I'm not saying I want to give up <laughs> what I've got, you know, my possessions and things like that. But there is a part of me that's very curious. What would that be like, you know? What would it be like, uh, you know? Can I, can I find out without giving it? Well,
0: you know, part of the reason why I like these retreats is because the answer is yes. yes. You know. So yes. you know, one of the things that happens when monastics are part of something is, is that a field is created. Mm-hmm. And people can come close to that feeling mm. of what happens in that field when something is, you know, offered out of generosity, and and there's some renunciation and simplicity, mm. and, yeah. and there's a level of restraint that's really quite a bit different than mm. the standard fare of what we see in our normal society. Right. Yeah. Right. So you, you do, do get to I see do. it. Yeah. I and do. feel it. I do. And it's beautiful. And feel the effect of it, yeah. you know? But there's also like, oh my God, get me out of here. And right. that also happens for people because it can evoke, you know, the fear of mm-hmm. spiritual authorities right. or the fear of having some kind of religious form ram down your throat. Right. With and I'm sure that's happened for
1: all of us, or a lot of us anyway, you know, that it's, it's been very abrasive in some ways in the past that you probably... Um, they probably believe that you're going to do it too in some part of their consciousness. which I mean.
0: but, And I think, you know, this is something that we need to really be careful about because the woundedness that we've had from abuse of authority and mm. abuse of power needs to be honored mm. and not just steamrolled or sidestepped or whitewashed because somehow there's an idealistic value that... I wouldn't do it, you know? So I think a high level of discernment, as well as systems and structures to support um, feedback mechanisms and safety, Mm -hmm. is what is needed. Mm -hmm. You know, because I came through a monastic tradition that had a phenomenal reputation, and yet, some of the things I experienced within the monastics was very sobering. Well, that uh, calls me to
1: another question because um, I'm sure, as any any organization or anything, there's a beauty, beauty, wonderful container, and I'm sure that there's also a dark side. And I don't know if you have uh, experience experienced that or feel comfortable talking about it, but. Uh,
0: Well, I think one of the real um, challenges that, as a Western person, y- you know, in in my in my life, for a variety of reasons, and it, I don't even know why, I have a absolute passion for enlightenment and deep personal integration. Mm-hmm and not to split the two, mm. but to integrate the two, Beautiful. okay? And what I see amongst my monastic brothers and sisters is is that a large majority have a tremendous passion for enlightenment, but they don't have the interest in integration. Mm-hmm. And so then what happens mm. is the monastic life becomes a way in which they cannot have to attend to some of the early kind of developmental tasks mm. that need attending to, mm. and the result of that is 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 that it can shift from being a place of tremendous safety to being a place of um, very exclusive, you know. Like what I noticed is, is, is that when people have the aspiration to awaken and then they come into a sangha, what they can experience is a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And then the longing to belong becomes more powerful than the aspiration to awaken. Oh, beautiful.
1: Yeah.
0: And, then what, and then what happens around that is, is then the protection of the identity around the tradition becomes more important than the principles of the tradition itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is where things go really skiddlywampus. Really? <laughs> I <I'll> bet. Yeah. <laughs>
1: huh. Yeah. It would be nice if there were some checks and balances around the whole thing.
0: Right. And so for me, you know, my own personal sense is, is that what's needed is not only for the priorities to be to hold both ends of the spectrum, but also for the lay community to have a feedback mechanism in the in the whole process. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the challenges is, is that in Asia, the monastics are regarded with the authority. Mm-hmm. And the lay community have their role, mm-hmm. but wisdom is not their role. Hmm. And in this society, it doesn't make sense to divide it Hmm. according Hmm. to precepts.
1: Hmm.
0: It makes more sense to divide it according to commitment and, you know, years of experience. Right. To have a leadership team that actually is committed to awakening that is diverse in their precept commitment. Right. So that the monastic world doesn't get so insular. Right. And, um, I don't know what that word is, of of interactiveness or feedback. Well, it's like, because we can see how different we are, we can also lose contact with how the same we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we can withdraw into our own unique differentness without actually appreciating the feedback that somebody who is a grandma and has been teaching for so many years... Would have to offer, in what you observed and saw, and the way we were relating. Mm, nice. Yeah, really nice.
1: Well, I think one of the things that put put me off with all of my religions, <laughs> or most of them, is uh, the the masculine weight and the weight of the masculine, and the not honoring of the feminine energy. And it's really caused me to pull back uh, and. And tried all these things and say well I've got to take what I can use from it myself and what supports me in my freedom and my awakening and because some things I'm just so conditioned to be activated um, to just something in me just says no to this you know <laughs> I'm not going to I, it was just too painful to look up to men is I mean, they are taller than me, but <laughs> <laughs> but to really have to uh, take you know God as a man or you know authority as a man or somehow or other it was better. I just I I can't. It, it's very hard for me to set that aside, and I know that there um, the issues around men and women and that's going on in Asia is is very challenging. I'm sure to the system but there's a part of me that just says, um, hello? <laughs> I think we're all entitled to enlightenment, you know? And, I, and, and the, the West is not buying that. Thank goodness.
0: So my own personal story was very rich with that because, you know, obviously as a, a, a person growing up in California, you know, I was, I was, I didn't, Consider myself a feminist. I just considered myself normal. Yeah. Okay. And so I came into a form that had this d- disparity between the male and the female. But the elders, who also were very impressive, were saying, well, if you just surrender to the form, mm. then the enlightenment that you will experience from that will completely supersede the disparity that right. you're having to deal right. with. Right. And so, you know, I had my issues of frustration and resentment and anger, but I work with it in terms of, well, what's my bit that I need to work on yeah, here? I mean, I can...
1: Yeah?
0: Yeah. And that worked for 15 years or 10, you know. But then when I realized that what was happening was is that the women were being conditioned to be unable to access their own wisdom, then I realized that we are in a very different ballgame. And it wasn't a question that we had to surrender to the form. It was a question that I was getting clearer that this disparity was harmful Mm. and that I was committed to moving out of it. And so in my own personal journey, I did what I knew to do to speak about it with the sisters and to find ways to talk about it with the monks Mm. and to find ways to... Address it and to find new ways of moving forward. And, you know, the, the, the women, you know, was a community for 30 years. Mm. And after about 20 years of the community's existence, there was the first threads of the community really consolidating as a community and doing some real powerful work together. Mm. And after about 25 years, we got strong. And as soon as the woman got strong and we weren't undermining and betraying each other the way that we had, then what happened was it caused absolute pandemonium. (laughs) (laughs) Because being strong and being able to communicate clearly and very lovingly was very threatening. And so what happened was there was a massive patriarchal retrenchment Mm -hmm. and I could see what was happening and I said, I am out of here. Wow. So I decided to leave the community and when I decided to leave, I had nothing. There was no group or invitation. There was no support. There was zero funds. There was just the clarity, I cannot do it like that. It doesn't look like it's going to change in the next many years. Mm. I feel committed to this path. I have to find a different way. So I came back to the States to find a way that would give voice and expression to this deep appreciation that the buddhist teachings are tremendously liberating the path as a monastic is phenomenally powerful Mm -hmm. and that a new way needs to emerge Mm. and yet how on earth do you do that
1: wow that's amazing (laughs)
0: And so by the time I came to this country, Awakening Truth had formed. I had an invitation to stay at somebody's house in their basement. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of money so that I wasn't destitute or everybody having to take care of me. And, you know, it is quite a, a process having been involved in a community for 20 years and then be out of it and be on your own.
1: So what I'm hearing is that it took... Uh, both uh, the conviction, which is obviously to the core, and then also uh, a tremendous amount of strength and courage to be able to step out, you know, into after all these years. And did that come, did your practice help you with that, to be able to move away, or was that mostly... Just by the strength of your conviction.
0: A lot of times I have been in situations that have been profoundly uncertain. And there was another period of time when I was wandering where I didn't have a fixed abode and I was just living from day to day. And I had to trust how that was going to be as an mendicant who doesn't store food, who doesn't handle money, who, you know, and... You know, I was traveling in Australia, I was in North America, I was in Canada, I was in the United States, and I lived like that. And for a a number of, a large period of that time, I found it absolutely terrifying. I mean, like, like so terrifying. But I stayed with it until the terror of it shifted, and I began to feel a tremendous freedom that came from that as well as a sense of being at home, in myself, independent of the circumstances that I was in, as well as, you know, the recognition that is challenging as it is, I'm actually okay. You know, it works. Yeah. Okay? So I've lived through that. And having lived through that, I knew that I would be okay, even though I have known how incredibly challenging this is. Okay? But for me, that door closed. It's like I cannot participate, condone, be part of something that I know in the bottom of my being is harmful. Good for you. That's great. And I stepped into absolute uncertainty. But because the practice that I have been part of has allowed me to be in absolute uncertainty, and know right. that.
1: Right. So you had that tool to work with. That's right. Yeah, and you and you knew how to step into not knowing and to right. deal with work with fear and all that. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of resources
0: right. for,
1: to do this what you really needed to do.
0: That's right. Uh-huh. And so for me, you know, I didn't I didn't name it as courage when I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> <But>. <laughs> because for me, it was I. There was, there was no other choice. Right, right. So I don't know if, right. if courage comes in when there's no other choice. Yeah, I,
1: I understand that very well. It's like <laughs> that's just what has to be done. It's like
0: there's just no question. And I guess you know, for me, when I first became a nun. I didn't ordain for a particular period of time. We were asked to make a commitment for five years. But that was not my commitment. My commitment was to this sense of, I will do this for as long as this continues to serve me. And if I no longer feel this is serving me, then I hope I have the courage to both see that and step out. And certainly over these last period of time, I have been so challenged, you know, and so questioning, you know, about is this still serving me? And, you know, on my knees about it. But I have never been able to answer that question with my intellect.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've only mm-hmm. been able to answer that question with my belly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. And my belly says, it is still serving, okay. so stay with it.
1: So it brings us up a curiosity of uh, how old you were when you, you know, felt this calling, and 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 how did that come about? Because uh, I know it's different for everybody.
0: Well. You know, I said before that I come from Jewish ancestry, like yourself, and there's a couple other people here as well, and as Jewish people, we don't have monks and nuns. It's not part of our culture, you know. And so, I don't understand, other than, you know, through a sense of of past life imprinting, why it was so strong, so young. But I walked into a class of Religions of India at the University of California at Santa Cruz where I was getting my undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. And within a week of being in that class, it's a lecture hall on a university campus, I had this sense of, well, I know without a doubt that the spiritual life is the center of my life. <laughs> That's and then amazing. within a month of that class, I had a vision of being a nun. Wow. And that was 1979,
1: and I was 17. <laughs> okay. That's amazing.
0: And that vision was, like, so compelling that it just stayed with me. And, you know, he talked about different masters, and I had a real strong sense of wanting to meet some of them, and then wanted to go to Asia to do that. Mm -hmm. And it took, you know, from 1979 to 1986 before I actually went to Asia to meet them. And all of those years I had been going on 10-day retreats like we're here, you know. Where you sit in a nice place that's heated, you know, with nice people, with a shrine, sometimes no shrine, with nice food, you know, it was all that kind of stuff. But in Asia, you know, one of the things that happened was, you know, these scars on the back of my head—they're mm-hmm. from a bear.
1: <laughs>
0: They're teeth marks of a bear. And, you know, before that, you know, it was sort of like, well, you know, there's the <laughs>
1: And
0: then there's before bear and after bear. <laughs> uh, and after bear, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I owed my life to the meditation practice that I'd done hmm. because of the circumstances of what had happened and why I was still alive. So it was a really powerful turning point. And so the conviction then got stronger because of being so close to I mean like it was like I could not figure out why I was still alive. You know? And then also meeting Deepama. So I'd heard about her and meeting her. Yeah. So a woman who was a grandma. Yeah who was so incredible. And, you know, her energy was so still, but so profoundly loving. Mm. You know, and so she had attained to to states of such incredible realization, as well as, you know, concentration, and had mastered all of these psychic powers. Mm. But the thing about Deepama was her love. And it was like, this is what happens if you practice. You know, this is where the practice goes. So the combination of these two things together really um, ignited, mm-hmm. or not ignited, rekindled something that had already been very strong. Yeah. And I was glad that it was because when I finally got to England, you know, a couple years later, to ordain. You know, the community of nuns was really a a group of women living in a patriarchal system. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: The dynamics that go on are unbelievable.
1: (laughs) Well, I want (laughs) to (laughs) hear. Some
0: examples. (laughs) You know, everybody has an aspiration to awaken. Yes. But we are connected to each other through the patriarchy rather than through our connection to each other. Right. Okay? And so our relationship to each other is then one of competition and vying for attention with the monks.
1: So you're still in the patriarchal
0: system. Totally. Oh, wow. And it took us uh, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, as a community, to be able to speak to some of what was actually happening and to develop some of the trust amongst ourselves so that the feeling of trust and safety in the group was actually really strong. And when it was, I first got there, the feeling of trust and safety was not strong. And so it wasn't because I fell in love with the monastic life, it was because I felt like somebody had taken me by the scruff of the neck and put me there and say, you stay there until I tell you to go otherwise. And part of the reason why the conviction was so strong was because of the experience with the bear and with Deepama.
1: Because that's so reaffirming. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was not um, safe. Right. But it had Dhamma in it right. and training in it. Right. And I felt like these things were going to be sufficient for awakening.
1: I, I'm actually stuck uh, with your impression. Take me by the scruff of my neck and and that brings up so many just um, memories of people that have came to me in therapy that were you know abused by authority and saying you do this and I'm sure when it came from you know religious or spiritual authority it's it's got to be so devastating because of the innocence and the openness, and, you know, it's like, and you're really, really trusting that, and they say, hmm.
0: Well, for me, the conviction was an internal conviction. That was what got me there, and yeah. that's what kept me there. Yeah. yeah, But in the last... But the form, you the, still have to deal with the form. You have to deal with the form. So, like, for an example, you know, I was in Angerica, so I was just a postulate, and I was wearing white robes. I had eight precepts, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I was struggling with the form, and one of the weird things about the form was is that the monks were not allowed to make this gesture, to reciprocate it, to anybody who was not a monk, okay? So the women were allowed to do to them, and the novice monks were allowed to do to them, but the monks were not allowed to do back this gesture to anybody who wasn't a monk. And I was like, what on (laughs) earth is all that
1: about, you know? Yeah. There's something wrong with this picture. (laughs) Right.
0: So I went to go speak to a monk about it, and I was like, I was just furious, you know, it was just like, it just seemed like, this is ridiculous. Right. And this monk was a lovely monk, and I had a lot of affection for him. He was very, very tender, and just very lovely. So I described the dilemma that I was in, and his response to me was, nuns have a very wonderful opportunity for practicing humility. Oh, that activates something in me. And I wanted to flatten him, and and so I left that, and I was, you know, stomping up and down on the walking meditation path with fury curling out of my ears, (laughs) smoke. And then there was this kind of little voice that said, you know, if you let go of this, you're giving up the cause. And I went, that's very interesting. What cause? Uh, you know? Yeah. So that was the place where I thought, oh, I see, I have some identification with fighting, with battling, yeah. with participating in some kind of a, a revolution. You know? That's my identity. And then I realized that's my place of work. Right. And that worked for many years. Uh-huh. And then it didn't work anymore. Uh-huh. Because when I was seeing the way the nuns were being conditioned to not trust themselves, right. and when the nuns were being conditioned to not have access to their own wisdom, right. I thought, no, no. This is not yeah. about my own inner work. Right. This is something very different.
1: That brings up the uh, question that comes up in relationships a whole lot. You know, When do I... You know, when is it my stuff? When is there stop when is, when do I work on me so how do And you, when do I split
0: so how do you answer
1: that I feel like uh, it's sometimes there is a deep conviction and a knowing and I and you sometimes it takes a long time for someone to really feel what's the right thing and it's important to question you know and, and to look at you know what do, what does this mean you know a relationships really 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 important and There's something wrong with this picture. (laughs) And so if you can't depending on your usually I say how long you've been together, but it's not even that. If you can't actually make it work, you may have to choose to leave. And so I certainly recommend for people to make try to make it work, look at their side, you know, but if the same person's coming back two years later, you know, it's like, okay, (laughs) is there some reason you feel like you need to do this? You know, or is it just a habit? Reason that you're in there? Or is it uh, what, what need is it satisfying? You know, and can it be met other places? And is it, we only have one life, supposedly. Well, maybe not. <laughs> but at least in this life, we only have one life. And it's an important thing. Our lives are important, it's precious. And so we
0: need to really feel deeply, and I'm sure you went through layers and layers. Right, so for 20 years, you know, a lot of this was me trying to figure out what was my part of it. Yeah, I would recommend, (laughs) (laughs) you know, if you can't change the system, it may be time to leave. Right, and then when I knew this is not to do about my part of it. Right. And it shifted into a real solid conviction. Right. Then my clarity was this is that I needed to do everything that I could to move out of this patriarchal thing. Right. But my first priority was to do it within the context of being in community. Absolutely. And we tried both to consolidate as sisters and had achieved quite a lot mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And then tried to negotiate with the monks. Mm-hmm. And then when we came up against the reinforced concrete, yep, it's like... I love you guys and I am out of here. Yeah. That's what it takes. That's
1: what it takes sometimes. That's the it's the only thing. And right. it's a real hard thing, but it's
0: Right. So it I had to be done. No doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, a line was crossed mm. and I knew immediately mm. it's done. Mm. Finished. Mm. And I didn't feel the slightest bit regretful or bad or mm. remorseful or wish that I hadn't. But what was devastating for me was the recognition that when I left the monks, I also left the sisters. Oh, yeah. And they were like an extension of my body. Yeah. You know? That was really hard. That was really, really, really hard. Kind of like cutting off your arms. I just don't have language to describe it. It's not like getting divorced. It's like being picked up and put on Mars. It's like being completely dislocated from everything that you know. I mean, it's just the most desolate, isolating, lonely... I just I don't have language to describe it. It's just incredible. But my faith is in the practice. You know, that's where I heal from, and that's where I return to. Mm. And the practice has given me the strength to stay with all of that Mm. in robes and find resource to meet the pain and to let it move through my system. Mm. But it wasn't done in isolation, and that's part of the reason why I have such an affinity and affection for the punks, Mm. because they tucked me under my wing, under their wing. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. And was the only group that was actually actively interested in making sure that I was okay.
1: Oh, wow. You know? Wow.
0: They were the only ones that was asking if I had food or if I needed medicine or if there was enough heat. Wow. And so it's like, you know? But I think, you know, one of the things that the kind of pain that I've been through all of us have been through. I'm sure you have many, many stories of your own journey. You know, what doesn't destroy you makes you stronger. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Did everyone hear that? <laughs>
1: what know. doesn't destroy you makes you stronger, as long as you let it go through and it right. doesn't, you know, so that try it, not to get right. it. Definitely
0: true. But I don't think I would have survived without the rocks. So I was living right next to the backside of the Garden of the Gods, mm-hmm. and I would go and press my body into those rocks. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. 150 million year old rocks, Imagine. and they could handle all of it, yes. any of it, yes. and they just didn't move. Yes. And so there was a sense of being received. The magnitude of what I was dealing with was was not just the, the um, dislocation from the community, but having been, you know, kind of like the, the unexpressed anger towards the feminine yeah. was focused on me. Right. Mm, that. And so I was like lightning rod for that. And to, to be that is not a joke, you know. I have conviction in the Buddha's path you know that the reason why he set this up in the first place was because it was supportive of awakening Mm -hmm. and that conviction has remained has remained even though the dynamics in the community have taken quite a lot to recover from Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the conviction in this as a vehicle for awakening has remained and so what I'm Curious about is what happens now. You know,
1: beautiful. We're all curious about that. Yeah, big question mark. Mm. My teacher Charlotte. She didn't speak English uh, very well. (laughs) That's another one of the limitations. But every now and then, she would just draw a question mark in the air. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: I just say, like, let that be a question.
0: Maybe that's a
1: good place to end. Maybe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSed